our closing series in 2 Corinthians, we've called Parental Guidance Suggested. And what we've recognized is through the words of Paul to the Church of Corinth here in our Bibles, that the Christian life is designed to be lived in community. And that the primary metaphor that the New Testament uses for that community is the metaphor of family that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so one of the aspects of how this works out in our lives is inherently parental. In other words, there's people who take motherly and fatherly-like love and through that love show interest in our lives and invest in us. Okay? And there's a sense where there are relationships you can probably lay a finger on and say, yes, this person is like a spiritual parent to me. And then there's a broader category where all of us are in this together and should care about helping one another forward in the Christian life. And so we all serve this parental role in one another's lives in places to nourish and to exhort and to um, support and to love. This last uh, section here in the closing verses of chapter 13, we're focusing on the fact uh, that a spiritual parent desires growth. Okay. Now, uh, I am a parent of five children, as of course is my wife. We would have more children, but that's only because my wife likes babies. Uh, and we have come to discover after five repeated times that babies become children. And so, so there's a natural cap, there's a nat natural limitation there. Um, but broadly, that truth aside, as cute and as wonderful babies are, parents make a mistake when they try and keep their kids immature. They make a mistake when they try and not let or resist their children growing up. The true heart of a parent is to see them mature, to grow fully into their potential, um, to take shape in fully orbed character. Uh, and it's the same for us in our lives in the church. We should desire that those around us continue to grow. Codependency, relationships where you feel great because you're needed and necessary and so you don't help people to feed themselves. You don't assist people to follow the Lord on their own, where you make yourself necessary in the relationship of another person to God, and whatever their calling is, uh, is a mistake. It puts ourselves in the wrong place. In fact, it's interesting that as much as we talk about Paul here seeing himself as a father, Jesus in another place says, don't call any man in your life father. What Jesus is pointing to is that if, if we're going to hold on to that metaphor of family, there's one true father, Father God. There's one true provider in our lives, our heavenly father. There's one true source that we turn to. However, as Paul says in Ephesians, he is the father through whom all fatherhood gets its name. Okay, He's the background. He's the ultimate source uh, and so, in our lives, we desire for people to grow up. We desire for people to follow Jesus more closely, to know them, know Jesus more fully, um, to more express and experience God's character in their own life. And as we'll see today, that is Paul's heart. 
What I want to talk about is what that desire looks like and what it leads to. And so let's read the passage together, starting in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians chapter 13 through the end of the book. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Father, we know that Paul's heart for the church in Corinth is your heart for us. And it's your heart that you desire to develop in us for one another. And so I pray, Lord, that you would, by your word this morning and through your spirit, bring us to understand this high calling of being a part of the family of God and to seek to express it in our relationships with one another, both in receiving the parental care of those in the church and in showing the parental love to those in the church. We ask for your help in this, in Jesus' name, amen. We see Paul's parental heart this morning in two different places. The first is in verse 9, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Okay. He says here, my ultimate desire for you, church in Corinth, is your strengthening, even if it comes at the cost of my own strength, even if it leads to my weakness. And he means more than that this morning, because in the context, Paul is coming to a church where these interlopers have stepped in and convinced people that maybe even though Paul started the church, maybe he's not really that great of a guy. And one of their big criticisms is that he doesn't seem to flex his muscles or use his authority in a way that they find impressive. And so he's been explaining over the course of the last few chapters that that's intentional, that he believes that the, uh, that the way God works in human lives through Christ often looks like weakness, because the way that God worked in Jesus Christ looked like weakness. It looked like suffering. It looked like death on the cross. It looked like surrender and submission, even to injustice. And so Paul says, yes, look at my life, and it's actually a lot like Christ's life, and that's where the power is found. Yes, there's death, but it leads to resurrection. But he also says, that's my heart here, is even if it's through my weakness or your defaming of my reputation or your misunderstanding of my heart, I rejoice in that weakness as long as it leads to your strength. And so we see right off the bat the reversal of what I was warning about this morning, this idea that says, you may be weak, but I am strong. When we talk about relationships in the church and serving one another in love, we are never talking about, in the long sense, being someone's strength. We're never talking about, in the long sense, being necessary. Because all of these relationships are inherently relative. 
If any of you can look at your own heart and say, I would qualify as a spiritual parent, I promise you, you still qualify as a spiritual child. They coexist. But even if that weren't the case, the heart of a parent lays their life down for the strengthening of their child. And like we talked about a few weeks ago, there's no better picture of this than a mother nursing her child, taking her own life and her own strength, and sometimes at great cost to herself, imparting it to her child to nourish and to grow and to feed. That's what parenting looks like. But the goal Paul sets out here is their strengthening. And he says it again. Uh, Now, recognize that Paul's parental role in the church has a specific authority factor. He is their pastor. He planted this church and led many to Jesus. He says earlier in the letter, you may have many teachers, but you have only one father. Many people have influenced and come alongside and uh, encouraged you and exhorted you and built you up and strengthened you, but I'm the one who led you to Jesus. I'm the one who took up residence in Corinth and for 18 months settled in and started this church. He has authority not only there, but he's also an apostle. He's been called by Jesus Christ to plant churches And even his words, as we read them this morning, are the very word of God because he's a representative of God. That's authority. But even in that place of authority, notice how he says, uh, or notice what he says that authority is for in verse 10. He says, for this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me. And so he says, I don't want to come and flex my muscles. He's not denying that he has authority here, but he has no desire to be severe, okay? It's overly said, and so we probably don't appreciate the value of it. And if you don't have kids, you probably don't even believe it. But when a parent expresses that this hurts me more than it hurts you, the words in any given circumstance may or may not be true, but the heart is a true parental heart. Paul is the same way. He doesn't want to punish them so that they fear him. He doesn't want to punish them and put them back in their place. He will discipline them if necessary for their good, but he'd rather do it from a distance with exhortation than in person and in authority. Okay? Any authority we have in another person's life, whether it's formal or informal, whether it's through an actual office we have or it's just through influence, We should be careful how we hold it. Jesus warns about this. He says, you know that those of the nations lord their authority one over another, over one another when they exercise authority. They hold it out. They demand their rights. They want their position and their posture. They want to be respected. Jesus says, but not so with you. But if anyone desires to be the greatest, he should be the least of all and a servant of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, or to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He presented a new paradigm. Paul sees himself as an authority in the church, but he also sees himself as a servant of the church, a servant for their good. In fact, notice what he says that authority has been given for. He says that I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. My purpose is to build. My purpose is to strengthen. My purpose is to grow. 
Now, that means sometimes there has to be tearing down. If you're building a house and you recognize that one of the walls that you've built is unstable, you don't just ignore it and keep building. For the strength of the building, you tear down, but you tear down to rebuild. And that's number one. Even when we do church discipline, Paul says that its goal, its end, is towards restoration, to restore to the church, even though he's come in confrontation is demanding that they change their lives so that they better align with the gospel of Christ, the goal is not to destroy them, not to remove them, not to eradicate them, but to rebuild them. He says that's the heart, it's to build. So that should be our heart for one another, to encourage and to restore. In fact, this word here, to build up, is one that Paul in the book of Ephesians calls us all to do. That we are to be about the edification of the saints. That our goal in being a church is not just to come and be built up Sunday to Sunday, but to build. To take the lives around us and see them grow in Christ. To edify them. So what does that look like here in the passage? A couple of things. The first one we see again in verse 9. He says, we're glad when we're weak and you're strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Notice again, going back to the passage we covered last week in verse 7. But we pray to God that you may not (coughs) do wrong. We pray to God that you may not do wrong. We pray for your restoration. Now, as a side note, that word there for restoration means to mend. If you were a doctor and you were using this word in ancient Greece, it would be talking about a bone that you were setting so that it would be restored. Okay? If you were a fisherman and you used this word, it would talk about a net that was frayed that you were fixing. Okay? What he desires is restoration for them, but one of the ways that that parental heart is expressed is through prayer. Before he takes any action, before he speaks any words, he's been praying for the church in Corinth. And part of, this, part of the reason this is the case gets back to that reality that any paternal role we play in another person's life is limited in comparison to God as Father. And our parental role is only beneficial when it's connected to that role of God as Father. Okay, it's only through representing God our Father, it's only through connecting people to God our Father that we actually do lead to building up, to growing the church, to edifying them. And so prayer becomes an essential component. And it was a major part of Paul's responsibility that he felt for his churches. He says to the church in Ephesus, we never cease to pray for you. We are always praying for you, he says to the church in Thessalonica. And here... When things are getting hot, when they're heated, when there's difficulty, the first place Paul expresses that parental heart is in prayer. And so we have to be honest this morning. If we identify as being Christians and we call this church our home, do we pray for one another? Do we ask that God would bring about restoration? Do we ask that God would uh, keep uh, one another from, um, from doing wrong? This is part of the parental heart. 
If you read the book of Job, we find one of the aspects, one of the only stated aspects of Job's character before everything goes south is that he's got all of these adult children who love to feast and enjoy themselves. And from a distance, Job is regularly offering sacrifices for them and praying that God would watch over them. He's not present at the party. He doesn't necessarily know if there's bad or good. He, he doesn't necessarily, it's, it doesn't tell us that their behavior was in any way questionable, but he's concerned. Not because they're concerning, but because, he's, because they're his children. He's just naturally, inherently concerned. He expresses that in prayer. Now, when we look at the prayers of Paul for the church, it can be a little staggering, honestly. Because when you look, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1 or Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul says, if you want to know, church in Ephesus, how I'm praying for you, I'll write it out. When we look at the prayers of Paul, he doesn't ask that they would get that new job. He doesn't ask that this uh, conflict at the office would be resolved. He doesn't ask um, that they would experience the blessings of their life or good health or any of these things. His prayers are so deep. They're focused on them growing in Christ. And so he says, my prayer, Ephesians chapter 1, is that you each would truly know everything God has given you in Jesus Christ the full riches of your inheritance in the saints, and the power that now works within you. In chapter 3, he says, I pray that God would give you the ability to understand, a spiritual ability to know that your heart would be strengthened so that you would know the love of God, and through that be filled with all the fullness of Christ. Paul's prayers express not just a desire for comfort of those he cares about, but growth progress, that they would know Jesus more deeply, that they would surrender more of their life to him, that they would come more and more, as he said, to be filled with all the fullness of God. One of the best ways that we can begin to edify and build up one another is to grow privately, quietly, secretly in our prayer life. Not just praying for ourselves, but for others. Not just praying for the basic needs and goods of life, but for the greatest good of life. That they would take it by the reins. And remember that Paul is praying here for people who do not respect him, who do not like him, who question his value in the body of Christ. In fact, he's praying for people who are really, really blowing it. Now, as a pastor, I understand that sometimes that stuff gets personal. That if my heart is left to its own devices, sometimes, and this is just honest, I think good riddance. I think, oh, what a relief that I don't have to deal with that anymore. I think, finally, I'm free from all of the demands of this relationship. That is not Paul's heart, and it's not God's heart. Remember when Jesus tells the parable, when he's trying to explain to the religious leaders who are just like I just explained my heart is, who keep their distance from anybody who's far from God, and he says, no, 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 you don't understand the heart of a shepherd. He says, the shepherd is the one who leaves the 99 
for the sake of the one that is lost and goes out and seeks it and finds it and lays it on his shoulders and brings it home and when he gets home he says rejoice for my sheep that was lost is now found. That's Paul's heart. In fact, that's God's heart. The Bible says that all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has gone his own way. And before we went looking for God, before we came up with a plan of restoration, God sent Jesus Christ to find us as lost sheep, to bring us home, to do for us not only what we could not do in paying for our sins, but what we weren't even asking God to do. If you're not a Christian this morning, you might see yourself as a seeker. Maybe you're here this morning to learn about God. You want to know if Christianity is true. You're trying to find out what is true. All of that's good, and probably all of it's true. But there's a deeper truth that you need to understand. And if you're going to understand what the Bible teaches, uh, this is what the Bible teaches. That it is actually God that is seeking us. That God is not lost. We are. And so it will change your posture if you understand that from... God, where are you? Show yourself to me. To God, please come and find me. Which is attitudinally a completely different heart. But one of the ways that we should express our love for other people in the church and outside is through prayer. Praying towards their growth. The second thing we see is exhortation. Look at what he says uh, in verse 10. For this reason I write these things, uh, sorry, verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. All of those, beginning with rejoice, all of those are in the imperative tense. They're commands, okay? He's telling the church what to do. Now, actually, if you read First and Second Corinthians in their entirety, there's nothing new here. This is a review, Okay. This is like when you're talking to your long-distance parents on the phone, and then at the end of the conversation, they double back and go, hey, don't forget to take care of this thing. Right? That's, that's all he's doing. He's just reminding them and reviewing the things he most wants for them, but he does it in the form of exhortation. He lays his finger on things, and he says, do not leave these things undone. We live in a time where often we're reluctant to speak into one another's lives. We see support as primarily being in the form of listening, primarily being in the for form of affirming, primarily being in the form of being along for the ride, come what may. All of that is true, but it's only half of what love is. Support also means encouraging them towards their goals. Support also means confronting them uh, to get them back on track. C.S. Lewis says this is the difference between kindness and love. Kindness desires that something would not suffer, but love desires that someone would be something better, that they would grow. And so he takes the time to exhort. And the exhortations are helpful for us this morning. Notice what the first one is. It's rejoice. That's where he begins. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Now, notice what he doesn't say there. He doesn't say, be happy. Okay. In fact, he doesn't even say, be joyful. 
But let's deal with that reality here. His goal is not that they would put on a smile, that they would, uh, you know, like Pollyanna, just take a positive view of life. He could have said that. He doesn't. He says rejoice. Rejoice is something different. In fact, like I said, he doesn't even say be joyful. He doesn't tell them how to feel. He tells them what to do. Okay. And this is important because you can rejoice when you're not feeling it. You can rejoice when life isn't good. You can rejoice when you aren't happy because rejoicing is taking the good things and speaking them aloud. Rejoicing is taking the things that you know to be true and taking joy in them actively. One of the primaries that, primary ways that we rejoice is that we praise God and we thank him for what he's done. Okay? Rejoice means to take joy in, but it's not passive. Okay? I mean, recognize this. Maybe, maybe your kids graduating from college would fill you with joy, right? The satisfaction, the encouragement. Maybe getting that promotion at work would fill you with joy, but you haven't yet rejoiced. Do you see the difference between those two things? Rejoice is when you actively respond to those things. And the truth is, for us as Christians, we recognize that our perspective is often clouded and limited. Paul says, we see as though in a mirror dimly. Now, that may not make sense to you in a modern world because our mirrors are pretty good. They provide total reflections. But in Paul's day, it was polished, polished bronze. It was blurry. You're not going to know if you have a hair out of place in the ancient world. That's just not how mirrors work. And he says, that's how it is with life. We get the impression of what's going on, but there's a lot of details that go unseen. Another way that I think you can think about it is to recognize that uh, your perspective is limited because you're finite and fallible and in one place at one time. You don't know where your story is going. You don't know what will happen tomorrow. You don't know what's happening behind closed doors in other people's lives. You don't know the outcome of whatever it is that's bothering you so much and you go, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me. That can be hard to gauge. Rejoicing is saying, these things I don't know. These things I don't understand. These things are hard. But here's what I do know. Meditating on that. Responding to that. Expressing your praise and gratitude on that. Now, side note, when you rejoice, you will find joy. Okay. The next one he gives, it says, aim for restoration. That's the same thing that he prayed. I pray for your restoration, but he doesn't leave it in the world of prayer. He calls them to do it. In the Revised Standard Version, an older, older Bible, it says, mend your ways. He doesn't just desire change. He exhorts them towards it. He says, these things aren't right. These things need to be fixed. Now, that's very broad in the church in Corinth. There's a lot of mending that needs to go on. There's a lot of places. And we need to see again here that Paul knows that and calls them to change, but he doesn't abandon them because they need change. 
If anything, their wrongdoing and their confusion and even their rebellion only draws him closer. He says, okay, this is, this is cancerous. It needs to be removed. This is toxic. It needs to be dealt with. This is a growing problem, and it needs to be uprooted. But he calls them to mend, their way, mend your ways. Take the places that are wrong and right them. Interestingly enough, the third one on the list, comfort one another, is just one word. It's the word admonish. The one another's not there. The translators are trying to decide what he does here. Uh, I think it's more likely, though, that we should translate this like it does maybe in your notes. Listen to my appeals. He's not telling them to comfort one another or encourage one another or admonish one another. He's saying, heed my admonishments. All the things that he's called them to do. One of the things that I hear in that is, again, the heart of a parent. Because it's a warning. It's not a threat. He's been very clear that if these things aren't dealt with, he's going to have to take action. But his primary concern here is not about his respect. It's not about him, his authority being dissed. It's about consequences. He knows where these things lead to if they're undealt with, and so it's worth dealing with them. And he knows, he knows what happens if they're dealt with and they respond poorly, and so he just says, don't leave this undone. Don't allow this to continue to wreak havoc in your lives. Don't allow yourself to be robbed of these things. In fact, the last part of this illustrates this. He says, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Notice the order there. He doesn't say, hey guys, God's love, God's peace, that very God, the God of love. Side note, this is the only place where Paul refers to the God of love in all of the New Testament. The love of God, he talks about quite a lot. But this is the closest he gets when, when John comes out of the gate in 1 John, and he just says, God is love. But he says, this God will be with you if what? If you live in peace. In God, we have tremendous resources for love and for peace. Ephesians was written to a church that is part Gentiles and part Jews. Before Christ, there was a division between those two groups of deep hostility. And Paul says, God has made peace in Jesus Christ. And the wall of hostility has been broken down. And the two are now made one. Any barrier you can think of, economic, racial, long-standing, um, uh, long-standing hostility and hatred, in Jesus Christ, we have tools and resources for that hostility to end. For there to be love where there was no love. But we need to recognize the fact that although God brings peace, often we bring war. We're the ones who create those walls of uh, division. They've been torn down in Christ, and we get down on our knees, and we begin to rebuild them. We make lines of separation. We distance ourselves from other people. We don't allow there to be reconciliation. We don't make ourselves, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, ministers of reconciliation. We don't seek restoration, and we let dead dogs lie, which means there's just death in the house. 
And so he says, live in peace. Stop fighting. This is what he says to the church in Galatia, and their problem seems to be in terms of gossip and slander, what the New Testament sometimes calls backbiting, criticizing at a distance. And he says, don't you know that if you continue to backbite one another, you'll consume one another? What's he saying? He's saying, don't you understand that if you tear down relationships, the relationships will suffer? But when we, like Jesus calls us to be, are peacemakers, we're the sons of our Father in heaven, the great and the true peacemaker. And all of his resources in making peace, all of his resources in love are available to us. And so he takes the time to exhort them to speak into lives truth and say, this needs to change. Why are you allowing this to continue? Being concerned for the consequence of sin, not just in the big picture of God's judgment, but in the little picture that that sin leads to death, that it destroys, that it corrupts, that it eats away, that it deteriorates, that it separates. And so it cares enough to get its hands dirty Parental love steps in and goes, oh, this is such a mess. Let me help you get out of it. And then the third thing he does here is he gives a benediction. Look at verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, notice he doesn't just teach them on Jesus' grace and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the love of God. It's not an explanation that he gives here. It reads more like a prayer. He says, may this happen, okay? But what this is is more than a prayer. This isn't just his desires stated on paper for the church. It's a benediction. It's a blessing. He's speaking this in writing over the church, okay? A benediction comes uh, in practice all the way back from the book of Numbers. On the Day of Atonement, after the priest had done his piece of the sacrifice, gone through the ceremony, dealt with the sins of Israel as a whole, he would come out and he would not just speak to this people, but he would speak over the people and he would say, the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. He's not just expressing the things that he desires God to do. In a sense, he's doing them. He's speaking them into existence. Now, this is not positivism that comes up with your own script and says, these are the things I most want, and I'm just going to visualize it over you. That's not what this is. This is taking the truths of the Bible and the God who is working in people's lives and speaking it as if it were true. The benedictions that we read at the end of service, this is what they are. They're not just speaking a word for you. They're not just a way to close the congregation. They're speaking words over you. Okay. The reformers saw this as part of what they called the keys. You may remember that Jesus speaks to his apostles and Peter in particular and says, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Okay. In other words, we're taking the things that God says are true in Jesus Christ and we're speaking them into one another's lives. That's what a benediction is. I want you to notice, though, that this benediction is rooted in the person and the work of God. Like I said, it's not positivism. It's not a brand new car. 
It's not health and all of these things. It's God himself. And what is it? It's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to notice that that's the fullness of who God is. That's the Trinity. This benediction is Trinitarian in nature. In one breath, he speaks of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And on top of that, just in case you're interested, notice that when he refers to the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we encounter directly the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person and not a force. Because how can you have fellowship with a force? Okay. But what he's really recognizing here is the resources to Christian growth. We desire that people would grow. We pray that they would grow. We exhort them to grow. But we're not telling them what to do in and of themselves on their own. We're not telling them to clean up their act and set things right. We're telling them to employ the power of God. That's why Paul says, without batting an eyelash after his entire ministry emphasizes the fact that God saves us, that we cannot save ourselves, that we only have access to that through faith, he says this, he says, work out your own salvation. Why? He says, for it is God who works in you. This is God working in us. These are the resources available to us. This is what Paul calls in Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the armory of the army of God. What is it? The first thing we read here is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we have available to us. And the recognition here, let's just use a very simple idea here. Okay, so he doesn't say the justice of our Lord Jesus Christ, which would be us getting what we deserve. He also doesn't say the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is us not getting what we deserve. He says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is us getting what we don't deserve. Okay. Sometimes people like to turn grace into an acronym to express it. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's helpful. Okay. It's the recognition uh, here that God freely gives us what we need and do not have. He freely gives us what we need and do not deserve. And he does it because Christ has made it available in his sacrifice, in his righteous life on our behalf. What this means for us this morning is wherever you're at in your life, even like the church in Corinth, if you're blind, if you're ensnared in particular sins, if you're believing lies and you're in total conflict, there is grace for you today. And an abundant and inexhaustible supply of it. However you feel about your relationship with God this morning, whether it's fragmented or strained, whether it's never begun, it always, always begins here with the grace of Jesus Christ. Not with your abundant tears and penitence. Not with your penance and your plans of how to set things right. Not with your promises of reform or to do things better. It begins with what Jesus has done and what Jesus offers you in himself. The second thing he mentions here is the love of God. God's love is not just amazing, it's transformative. When God's 
love is rightly seen and rightly understood, you can't be the same person anymore. I heard about a short film recently. It was about a man who was very poor, living in Asia, who had fallen in love with a prostitute. Common plot point, right? And so he watched her from a distance, and he saved up all her money, all of his money, until he had enough to spend the night with her. And so they got into the room, and he said, Look, I don't want anything from you. I just wanted to give you tonight so you could rest, and I just want to be here. And she, you know, was surprised and didn't know what to do. And she woke up the next morning, and he went his way. That was the end of it. But after that, she couldn't be a prostitute anymore. She couldn't keep going on her line of work because she had seen something completely different. Every expression of romance and sexuality and love in her life had been selfish, had been focused on what they get out of it, had been empty, and now that she had tasted something else, it changed the way she saw everything. That's the love of God. The love of God is so good, so deep, so transformative, that Paul says at the end of his uh, argument in Romans that he's become thoroughly convinced that whatever he faces in life cannot separate him from God's love. And he lists it. He says, death, powers, principalities, suffering, starvation. There's nothing on earth or in heaven that can separate us from the love of God. I want you to notice what Paul doesn't say there. He doesn't say, I'm thoroughly convinced that because I have God, I will be separate from suffering and death and poverty and starvation and all this animosity and enmity and demonic powers. He doesn't say, I'm convinced I'll be protected. He says, the one thing that matters most to me can't be taken. And what is it? The love of God. Then lastly, there's the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Now, it would have been amazing if he just said the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible makes clear that as Christians, we live our lives of obedience. We repent of sin and turn away from the things we used to desire. We, uh, we do this through the Spirit that God has given us. Not in and of ourselves, not in our own strength, not, as Paul says, by the flesh, but by the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit working in our lives is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness. That's what God is doing in us through the Spirit. It's also the Spirit that employs us in the church by empowering us with gifts so that we can serve one another. But this verse doesn't just talk about the power of the Holy Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit. It talks about the fellowship of the Spirit. And so one of the things that this clearly means is that wherever you are this morning in your life, whatever decision you need to make, whatever sin you need to repent of, whatever ensnarement, whatever conflict you're experiencing and separation of a relationship that needs to be restored, you're not alone. You have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. God is present with you. To the degree that Paul says we as a church, individually and collectively, he says it both ways in different places, we are the temple, the place where God dwells. But it obviously means more than that. Because when we talk about having fellowship with the Holy Spirit, we also inherently have fellowship with one another. There's no greater grounds for unity in the church of God than the fact that we all have the self-same spirit at work in us. 
The fellowship of the Holy Spirit is a recognition that God is working in our lives, not just internally, but through relationships around us. We are not alone. Now think of these things and what they mean for Paul. As he looks at this church that is hostile and broken and walking down a bad path of destruction, that's on the brink of experiencing real conflict, that's denying his love, denying him the respect he deserves, denying that he's even a Christian. And hear these words for Paul. He knows that despite that, Jesus' grace is sufficient for them. He knows despite that, that there is nothing they can do to escape God's love. And he knows that the self-same spirit that is working this heart of parental concern is working in this church. This is the last we hear about the church in Corinth. We never get to read about their restoration or what happens next. Now, I think there's actually good reason to believe that that's exactly what happened because we have this letter. Who is this letter written to? The church in Corinth. And yet they preserved it and they saved it. Is this the type of thing that you would put on your wall like a diploma or an accomplishment? This is us. This letter talks about us. It reminds me of the book of Jonah. Have you ever thought about that? Jonah, half of it is conversations that happen privately. We have uh, the writings of Jonah while he was in the belly of the whale. We have his private thought life going on. And then we have an argument he has with God in the desert. Have you ever noticed how the book ends? The book ends open-endedly. Jonah doesn't change. He's left in the text as he started, angry at God because of God's goodness. But it's pretty clear, it's pretty clear that Jonah wrote the book of Jonah, looking back on his life. And his goal isn't even to say, I'm a better person now. His goal is, say, is to say, encounter the tremendous goodness of God. And he leaves the story unended because he wants to put the story in your own lap. Because you and I are often Jonah. You and I are often the church in Corinth. But it ends here, not with a threat, not with a warning, but with a benediction, with hope. And Paul expresses this hope throughout all of 2 Corinthians. He knows that God is capable of helping them to do the right thing, and he believes that the self-same Jesus that saved them can save them afresh. My desire for us as a church is that we would begin to experience this true love, this familial love. And it's not just a love that rejoices with those who rejoice and weeps with those who weep. It's not just a love that fully and freely shares of its resources so that all can be taken care of. It's not just a love that shows up at three a.m. in the morning when things go south and they didn't know who else to call. It's a love that desires growth. It's a love that longs for each and every one in the church to be in a greater way conformed into the image of Jesus. It's a love that recognizes our role not only to be the temple of God but to build it. Let's pray.
Father, we are so grateful this morning for the spiritual parents in our lives, for those who took us and told us about Jesus, for those who expressed their concern and their care for us, for those who have taught us and explained more rightly the way of truth, for those who have nourished us and encouraged us, for those when we were not (laughs) nice to be around, dug in their heels and stayed with us, and for those who pray for us. I ask, Lord, that we all would begin to show those marks of maturity. We are all your children. We are all growing day by day, but I pray, Lord, that you would also make us into those who cultivate growth in the lives of others. Teach us how to serve one another in this way. I pray, Lord, against this self-centeredness and selfishness that runs so deep in our hearts that we tend to just think about our Christianity as what's in it for me. It's just an autonomous, private aspect of our life. When you're calling it to us to something greater, to being part of a family, having a place and an identity and a community and a role, being part of a body, working together so that the whole body builds itself up in love into the fullness of stature of Christ. Thank you for this, and we pray in Jesus' name that you would continue this work. Amen.